From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Their footsteps were heavy. And when they walked, it was very, very audible. The SS patrolling Vienna. They usually marked in step, even if only three of them walked together, even two of them together, you could hear them for a half a block. Today, the story of a man who fled the Nazis, joined the 10th Mountain Division, and returned to Europe to fight the Axis powers. And we were able to penetrate them through a feat that had never been done before, and the Germans didn't expect. That is, through mountain climbers. We had mountain climbing teams scaling the rocks in areas which only the Germans or the Austrians or the Italians could do. Later, the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel dims for healthcare workers as the Delta variant rages. And a new draft congressional map. You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. An extraordinary story today of a man who escaped the Nazis, came to the United States, joined the army, and returned to Europe to fight Hitler. John Sachs was a member of the 10th Mountain Division, the skiing, climbing soldiers of World War II who trained for dizzying altitudes and freezing temperatures in Colorado. So I was made a citizen in a little silver mining town in Colorado called Leadville, Colorado, a very picturesque, colorful town with a silver dollar bar, which is really like the Wild West was in that little courthouse. Uh, And we did go overseas. I'd heard about John Sachs from his grandson, David, a reporter who sits near me in our newsroom. And when I learned that Dave was leaving our sister publication, Denverite, I asked if he'd bring his grandfather's story to the radio first. David agreed. Hi, David. Hi, Ryan. Your grandfather died in 2013. Where does all this archive tape come from? So it's from an interview done in 1996 by survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation. And that was founded by Steven Spielberg to capture stories about survivors of the Holocaust. Yeah, I remember that project done on video. Shoah means Holocaust in Hebrew, by the way. Who was John Sachs, your grandfather? He was a lot of things. He was born to a Jewish family in Prague in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. My Gramps was a plumber. He was an insurance salesman. He was very prickly at times. Um, He was hilarious other times. Not sure if that's because of or in spite of what he went through. Um, He was also a dark person and a loving person. But a lot of what defines him for me was his resilience. I mean, he needed to survive starting March 12, 1938, as he watched Hitler march through the streets of Vienna, uh, where he spent most of his childhood. He was 17 then. There was tremendous enthusiasm for National Socialism in Austria. Tremendous enthusiasm. People were very impressed by Hitler's daring to thumb his nose at the nations which drafted the Peace Treaty at Versailles. He just marched into the Tsar, he marched into the Ruhr, nobody stopped him, 
and that was tremendous propaganda. On the one side, on the other side, anti-Semitism is always a good cause to latch on to, and the Austrians did so to the fullest extent. When I was a kid, my grandpa always, always told me that people who carry out atrocities are at first just ordinary people. Friends and countrymen can become terrifying people in your life. Um, And after Hitler's arrival, he explained the new normal of the SS patrolling the streets, and he remembered the sound of their footsteps. Their shoes were usually low shoes but heavy, with cleats in the back and the front. And when they walked, it was very, very audible. They usually marked in step, even if only three of them walked together, even two of them together, you could hear them for a half a block on the pavement, which added a sort of a frightening kind of a dimension to it. The other thing I I might want to say is, and that disturbed me here always, that most of these people, most of these friends of mine and their parents were very similar people to the people here. They they didn't have horns. They weren't stupid. They went to concerts. They liked music. They liked to drink. They could be charming. They could be miserable, just like people here who are not unusual, very frightening kind of a thought. Did you witness any events that stand out in your mind even today? Well, early on, the events that stand out were that within days, perhaps weeks, groups of Nazis in in uniform, or even without uniform, someone just had armbands, uh, went into Jewish stores and shops and made the owners paint the store windows with Stars of David and the word Zawyut, which means Jewish swine, and in general harassed the Jews tremendously by spitting on them, by kicking them even. And one popular pastime in Vienna and I guess in Austria altogether in the early days was to have Jews scrub the sidewalks. Many political slogans and, and symbols were painted on the sidewalks unlike here on walls of graffiti. And they had Jews in groups, small groups, kneeling on the sidewalk, scrubbing. And people were just unbelievable, horrible about that. They walked by, kicked, spit, yelled. Just just the kind of thing you one could not really believe. But then so many things happened that can't be believed. So one of the people made to do the scrubbing was his dad, my great-grandfather, Otto. Otto and his wife, Elsa, owned a dry goods store in Vienna that the Nazis eventually seized. Elsa and Otto lived above the store, and my grandfather, he was a plumber's helper, uh, had a thought about how to hide valuables from the Germans. I had the idea that I could perhaps hide some money and the jewelry, under a toilet bowl. Now that sounds worse than it is because the toilet bowl has a hollow space which is about that big, if not a little bigger, under it. And when you take the toilet off and turn it around, you can fill that empty space with whatever you want to fill it. And that's exactly what I did. And then put the toilet back again and put plaster around it and it was fine. The concern, of course, was what happens when my parents wanted that that money. And then after the war, a brother of my father-in-law's visited Prague and got the jewelry 
and finally wound up in New York. And, and my wife uh, got it all, uh, with the exception of one or two pieces. It's still around. Otto and Elsa didn't want to leave their home until it was too late. And they would later perish at Buchenwald and Auschwitz concentration camps. But my grandpa, again, their son, saw the writing on the wall and planned his escape with other young Jews. Meaning he left his family's home because he sensed what was coming. Right. And Otto and Elsa were up there in years and reluctant to leave. First, my grandpa went to Prague, which had not yet been taken by Hitler. I don't know now what I mentioned. I lived in an area where there were very few Jews. But I, as others as well, at that point, did all the research I could to find the Jews I knew from one place or another, who even if they lived a distance away. And so we met from time to time, got together, and and the main subject of conversation was where we're going to go. So after failed attempts to find passage to Central and South America, my gramps and his buddies looked through phone books at the American consulate in Prague and wrote to people in big cities, New York, Boston, San Francisco, to see if anyone would sponsor them, people with the same last name. Gosh, it's almost like cold calling except in letter form. Right. One person in Jamaica, New York, a dentist, the Dr. Nathan Sachs, wrote that he's considering it, that when my quota number comes, he will more seriously consider it. Uh, one thing I, I would like to say that doing that for a complete stranger is really a fantastically marvelous gesture. The man had to bear his finances, not only personal inconvenience, but also uh, an obligation he took on to guarantee my not costing the American government anything. This guy, Nathan, which, by the way, means gift in Hebrew, is a legend in my family. My parents almost named me Nathan after this dentist. I actually met his son at my grandfather's funeral in 2013, Anyway, the phone book letter approach worked, and Gramps sailed to New York and ended up living in Brooklyn, in Flatbush. He made an important phone call upon his arrival. One of the first things we did after my papers were, after I was passed and all that, was go to a telephone, a public telephone, and call Dr. Sachs. And uh, it was one of these earphones, ear and mouth pieces separately. And uh, Dr. Sachs started talking to me. And I could not say one word. This was was one of the most embarrassing moments in my life. All I could think of is, now here this man did all this for me. Now he he got someone who who seems to be an idiot, a total idiot. It was was really frightened me, it bothered me tremendously. Because all I could understand probably was hello or something like that. Nothing, no word came out of me. My English was practically non-existent anyway. Fortunately, this was remedied after two or three weeks when I first saw them. And then, of course, over the years, we became good friends. We are hearing the story of the late John Sachs, who escaped the Nazis, came to America, joined the 10th Mountain Division, the skiing soldiers of World War II who trained in Colorado. John's grandson, David, formerly of Denverite, is sharing an archive recording with us from the USC Shoah Foundation. All right, so his gramps finds safe passage to the United States, then gets drafted. Basic training I had in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, but uh, through, I guess, a fluke, I got into what 
was to be the ski and mountain troops. America never had mountain troops before, and I, since I had done skiing before and during my three months basic training, one day the first sergeant asked, would anybody ever skied before? And I raised my hand, and so I wound up in the ski troops. Were there any Jews in your unit? Oh, sure. In fact, there were some refugees, because the only people who skied in, in the 1940 or 38 were either very wealthy people or people who came from Europe. There were Jewish refugees, but there were others as well, skiers, some of the world's best skiers who had come here to run a ski school in Vermont or somewhere or in, in Sun Valley or what have you. Can you recall any anti-Semitism in your unit? Certainly not from my fellow soldiers. Uh, well, it existed, but it was really minimal. Where it came from, strangely enough, was from people who never saw a Jew before, and these were some of the officers who came from the Middle West. Or the, We had a number of people from Montana, where there's a lot of snow and where skiing is done. And I found out at some occasion that I was investigated because they had some kind of investigative office later on in our base camp in Colorado where I was questioned whether I was a member of the German Bund, all kinds of silly questions, which, of course, didn't apply to a Jew. Who were your friends in the Army? My friends in the Army were mostly uh, people who had uh, a very luxurious young life had gone to good colleges, had tremendous understanding for the, uh, the plight of a refugee. To them, I guess I was unique in some respects, but also uh, at the same time very accepted. While you were in the Army, did you and your friends discuss the uh, situation of the Jews in Europe? I suspect that we did. I have problems remembering specifics. I know these guys were amazingly sympathetic, amazingly understanding. These were mostly bright guys. Because the outfit was what it was, we had people who came out of very influential families, many of them old American families, with a liberal kind of a background. Uh, not the isolationist type of background, because one, many of these guys had volunteered to, to enter the army. Uh, so there was tremendous understanding. It was discussed, you know, when you think that a bunch of buck privates, which we were, the magazines that came in the mail was Newsweek, Time, The New Yorker, The New Republic, magazines that usually dog-faced soldiers, who are, which is the, the name for soldiers who are just on the lowest level of soldiering, would have that kind of intellect and that kind of uh, reading material. So they, they really knew much more than most of our officers did. So he becomes a U.S. citizen in a little courthouse in Leadville. Then they send the 10th Mountain Division to the Aleutian Islands, then to Italy, where the experimental unit made a name for itself, fighting in the Alps. So we were sent there, and we were able to penetrate them through a feat that had never been done before, and the Germans didn't expect. That is, through mountain climbers. We had mountain climbing teams scaling the rocks in areas which only the Germans or the Austrians or the Italians could do with their Alpini troops, or Gebirgsjäger and, and, and all that. And we rerouted them and got many commendations. And it's a miserable life because even when uh, you live 
like a, an animal. It's muddy, it's dirty, it's either cold, or, and you, you live in rubble. Protect yourself the best you can. Of course, the most frightening thing is when you are being shot at by artillery, when you're in the open, along the side of the road, or worst of all is strafing, when you want to strafe by planes which swoop down with a noise that just goes through, and the ratatatatat, and you try to get as low as you can in the ditches on both sides of the road, and of course you literally scratch the earth with your fingernails. By the time John Sachs was honorably discharged, he'd reached the rank of staff sergeant. He moved back to New York, where he married my grandmother, Eva, and raised my dad and his younger brother in Queens, and that was before making enough money to move to Connecticut. Dave Sachs, did your grandfather go back to the places he knew as a kid in Europe? Yes, and it was very emotional for him. It was something my grandmother never wanted him to do. Um, but she had passed, and then he went there in 1996, eight weeks before this interview was taped. Hmm. He went with my dad and his brother, my uncle. Um, They went on a sort of ancestral pilgrimage to Prague and Vienna. And when they got to Vienna, my gramps looked up a childhood friend. This is someone who, after Hitler marched on the city, had crossed the street while wearing an SS uniform to avoid my grandfather. Hmm. And while in Vienna, he called his one-time friend on the phone, uh, by the way, my grandfather's first name was originally Hans. And he, there was a moment of quiet, and suddenly he says, Hans! Uh, and it, the way it is said, when you hear it, it almost penetrates. There's something about the way it is said, and I, and, and I tell people now, it sounds like Hans, go over and lick this man's boots or something like that. In any case, he wanted to see me, I wanted to see him. He came to the hotel the next day, and we talked about nothing, a significant family. He became an engineer. And uh, I really didn't talk too much about my family. Maybe I did. Uh, until he began to tell me that how terrible and tough times were during the war, and particularly after the war. And so I asked him, do you know what happened to my parents? And he knew my parents well. He ate in our house often. Uh, he says, no, and I told him, well, they were sent to concentration camp, and they were gassed. And he goes, he puts his hands up and, and says, Hans, please don't tell me that. I can't hear it. I cannot accept it. I, I, I just, it breaks him up. And there's really no sense in my going on. Well, at that point, I decided that we'd just better finish the conversation and say goodbye, which we did. We didn't exchange addresses, and it was obvious we were worlds apart at that point. My grandfather is probably the main reason I believe in journalism as a force for justice and for change. He was flawed like everyone else, but I feel like the life he was dealt made him so strong, sometimes salty. (laughs) He was certainly a teacher that I had no choice but to listen to. And my identity is wrapped up in his. Here's how we finish the interview with survivors of the Shoah. 
John, at this point, do you have a message for future generations? Oh, I have a message, all right. Uh, be gentle with words. Words can hurt more uh, uh, and be more powerful than many weapons. Uh, that uh, racism or anti-Semitism or prejudice altogether, that's not to say I'm pure, I'm not, is a, a deadly weapon and in the end really uh, will help no one. The late John Sachs, Holocaust survivor and American veteran, he died in 2013, but his story lives on thanks to a 1996 interview with what's now called the USC Shoah Foundation. Shoah is Hebrew for Holocaust. Sachs' grandson David shared that recording with us, along with his own memories, before he left Denverite to cross the Atlantic himself and move to Spain. Dave, we'll miss you. Good luck in the next chapter. As you heard, the 10th Mountain Division trained in Colorado at Camp Hale. There's an effort in Congress to make it the country's first national historic landscape. In June, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett testified in favor of the legislation that it's contained within the CORE Act. This bill also provides a new historic designation for Camp Hale, a site where the 10th Mountain Division trained to become America's first military climbers and skiers. When these soldiers deployed to Europe from Camp Hale, their specialized training and experience in the Colorado high country helped them rout Nazi forces in the mountains of northern Italy, clearing a path to victory in the Second World War. After the war, this greatest generation, the 10th Mountain veterans, returned home to Colorado and launched the outdoor industry we know and love Today, protecting Camp Hale would not only honor this incredible history and legacy, but also the veterans who continue to find peace and solace in our outdoors. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett testifying on behalf of the CORE Act, a public lands bill before Congress that would designate Colorado's Camp Hale a national historic landscape. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with ICU's near capacity in northern Colorado, the picture from a frontline doctor in Fort Collins. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The light at the end of the tunnel has disappeared for many healthcare workers. The pandemic has proven unrelenting with the onslaught of the Delta variants. 
We're going to get the picture now in northern Colorado, where Dr. Diana Breyer is a critical care physician for UC Health. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll talk about the numbers and patients in a moment. But you know, we just wrapped up a two-week road trip asking Coloradans simply, how you doing? Um, it's been a rough year and a half. So doctor, how, how you doing? Well, it, it has been a rough year and a half, and uh, I, I think that I can speak for myself as well as uh, a lot of the colleagues that I work closely with in the ICUs that um, this uh, last several weeks um, has has been very difficult. Uh, I think we all had hoped that we were um, not going to surge in the way that we're seeing the numbers go up right now, and I think that's been very frustrating and disheartening for, for a lot of us. You use the word surge. And just tell me a little bit about that choice of words, Serge. Uh, uh, about um, discouraged? I'm, I'm sorry, the word surge, why, why you oh, use surge. it. Oh, surge, yeah. sorry. Not sorry, at all. I didn't hear that. Uh, yes, uh, so we, um, we are currently um, in UC Health caring for 255 patients with COVID across our hospitals. And so this number is the highest that we've been um, since uh, early January, and are uh, are similar to the numbers that we had when we surged uh, the first time back in uh, in the start of this and uh, in the spring of 2020. What does that mean? The ICU looks like right now. So what that looks like is uh, at this time we so in Northern Colorado, which I can speak to, um, we're we're down a little bit compared to when we had these discussions last week. But we are taking care of 83 hospitalized patients across um, the three hospitals of UC Health in uh, in Northern Colorado, and uh, about uh, 50% of those patients are in the ICU. So we are we are very full of, of patients. Uh, in addition to COVID, uh, people are still out doing their usual activities. So we're still seeing trauma. People still need to come in for other medical emergencies, and uh, and and this is true in in other systems within Colorado as well. So a lot of our time right now is spent on being creative uh, about how we can make sure we meet the needs of our communities. Um, making sure that we have enough ICU beds, uh, finding places um, for, for ICU patients that may not traditionally be thought of as a, as a critical care um, room, and, uh, and then also um, working on staffing models that allow us to extend our critical care nurses um, uh, for team-based care so they can be um, utilized for the things that absolutely requires a critical care nurse, and they can have help with the things that don't necessarily require that. Uh, we're also looking at that for our, for our doctors who are, are, are taking care of these patients as well. So it's, it's a lot of time uh, spent um, making sure that we have the right resource to take care of the patients that are coming into our doors. There's a lot to unpack there because one difference between now and earlier in the pandemic is that we know early on people tended to avoid seeking out health care that was not COVID-related. And uh, this had been described to me by one ER doc as Slovid, uh, that emergency rooms 
uh, were actually empty because folks were so afraid to go out and perhaps expose themselves and seek other types of care. What I hear you saying now is that in addition to the COVID cases, uh, no doubt related to the Delta variant, you have people out and about who are using the emergency room and the ICU uh, as normal, and that is leading to something of a crunch. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. And and you know, I, I have to say that we are we're happy that people who are are seeking care for their non-COVID emergencies, um, because that was a concern early in the pandemic, where we were seeing um, people presenting with much um, more uh, severe condition than they they would have had they uh, sought help earlier, uh, or sometimes even having a very bad outcome because they weren't coming to the hospital. Uh, so, so we are happy that people are doing that. But yes, it is that is one of the differences. Our our emergency departments had been very slow early on in the COVID pandemic, and now they are back to their um, their business as usual, which is very busy. You talked also about getting creative in terms of making space for the COVID patients and those who are seeking ICU care for other reasons. What does that mean? I mean, are you, you're, you're not using tents or hallways at this point, are you? <laughs> no, no, um, we're, we're not doing that. Um, uh, but we are, um, you know, looking at rooms that may have been a, a progressive uh, care room, which is sort of intermediate between an intensive care and a floor room, uh, and, and putting patient, uh, staffing those and, and getting the equipment we need for critical care into those rooms. Um, and uh, uh, occasionally doubling up, making sure that we are able to um, to get the patient to the right level of care in the hospital so that we can keep them safe. You made reference earlier to care teams. I want to be very clear that when there's a patient in the ICU with COVID, it's not just one person that's tending to that patient, but really a whole team. Uh, that must be consumed with their care. I want to talk just briefly about vaccinations. Northern Colorado, where you are, Dr. Breyer, is a study in contrasts. Larimer County, home to Fort Collins, has a 72% vaccination rate. Immediately to your west in rural Jackson County, it's just 46%. How are vaccines shaping who comes into the hospital with serious COVID cases? Uh, that's a great question. And what we are, are seeing as an organization, we're working to get more exact numbers, but I can certainly tell you uh, in my experience in Northern Colorado that the great majority of the people that we are seeing in the hospital are unvaccinated. Uh, we are seeing a few patients who have been fully vaccinated that are getting seriously ill and requiring ICU care. And that is generally in um, the very elderly, um, usually with immunosuppressive um, medications that they have to take for other conditions. Mm. Do you have conversations with folks who land in the hospital who are unvaccinated? Yes, we do. And, you know, our recommendation, even after they um, are able to get through um, an a, a severe COVID illness, if they are able to survive, is to um, get vaccinated. Um, we... Um, you know, as, as I talk to patients, because I, I think that that's been one of the things that the medical community has been struggling um, with is that we have this way of preventing um, serious illness from this devastating disease. 
And uh, we are seeing people coming in younger now because uh, I think, you know, as you noted in Larimer County in particular, you know, we, we've been very successful with vaccinations, um, uh, especially in some of our older populations. And uh, when I'm talking to patients and trying to, you know, understand, um, you know, their, their frame of reference and how, how they arrived here, often I'm hearing that people um, just didn't realize that they could get so very sick. You know, many of these younger folks have known people who got COVID, who, who got sick and got better, didn't end up in the hospital. And, and so I, I think that uh, the frame of reference that, that I have, where I see many sick people in the ICU ending up on ventilators for weeks, some of them even dying, is not the frame of reference that everybody has. And, uh, and so that, um, that, that was enlightening to me as I, as I talked to patients. Mm. And so their immediate environments are really helping influence their decisions around vaccines, um, which... I feel like uh, it's a good reason to speak with you and get perspective on how serious yeah. the you know the cases can get even for young people. You mentioned ventilators early on in the pandemic. Uh, if you were placed on a ventilator, odds are that you would not be weaned off that ventilator alive. Is that changing? If if one winds up on a ventilator. And, and perhaps you can speak to how often people are on ventilators these days. But if one winds up on a ventilator, is are the odds better that you'll come off alive? It really, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. And it depends quite a bit on age categories and, um, and uh, how, you know, other medical conditions that somebody may have. Um, I will say that when we look at, um, when we've looked at our experience with um the past two surges, what we're seeing is that um, about 25% of people who end up on ventilators will will die from COVID. Um, so, in all comers, um, you know the the 70 uh, to 75% are surviving. Um, we are uh, treating this a little bit differently than we did in the very beginning, where we thought we better get people on ventilators early and often. Right. Now we're right. using a lot more. Um, of uh, heated high flow nasal cannula, which allows a lot of oxygen to be given or even non-invasive ventilation, which is a, a mass that fits tightly around um, the face and uh, helps to ventilate patients without actually having a tube put into their uh, uh, throat, into the trachea and, and attaching them to a machine. Uh, so some of those devices are allowing patients to avoid uh, getting intubated. Uh, so, so we are treating things a little bit differently than we did uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Breyer, uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way, and Diana Breyer is a critical care physician with UC Health in Northern Colorado, where she's also chief quality officer. And uh, Dr. Breyer, I, I want to follow up on something you said earlier, which is that when people land in the hospital with COVID, you want them to uh, get vaccinated very quickly. Do they get vaccinated afterwards? Uh, I, I have, so we do um, wait until they've recovered from a serious illness, which is, so there is a time period and our, it is our recommendation and part of uh, the discussions that we have with them. Um, it's hard uh, for me to have line of sight on, on how many are getting uh, vaccinated okay. afterwards, but I can tell you that conversations I've had with some patients is that this experience changed the perspective of, of themselves and their family uh, around this disease. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that, that will uh, equate to more vaccinations. 
Diana Breyer, critical care physician at UC Health in Northern Colorado. What will Colorado's new congressional districts look like? We should have a final answer by the end of the month. The Independent Redistricting Commission released a revised map a few days ago. Now it's gathering public feedback. And soon, commissioners will vote on whether to adopt this proposal or go back to the drawing board. Our public affairs reporters, Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim, walk us through the implications of this draft map in the latest episode of Purplish, our politics podcast. Let's start by explaining what this map is. The nonpartisan staff put out a revised map that incorporated U.S. Census Bureau ground-level data, as well as months of public comments, both in person and submitted online. This map is the first formal staff map. So they put out a starting point map in June, and it looked pretty close to the existing congressional map in Colorado. No big fundamental changes. But this map that came out right before Labor Day weekend is the first map commissioners could actually vote to approve. Right. Now, we should go through what this new staff map does, what the big changes are. And I've got to say, as you're listening, if you can find the map online, and we do have it at CPR.org, it might be a little easier to follow this next part. So I'll wait a second while you pull up the map. (laughs) All right. I feel like that's, that's enough time. So the logical starting point I think to look at the map is the third congressional district because by changing that district's reorientation, it has like this domino effect and it affects most of the other congressional districts in the state. That's true. You can't shift one thing without having to move everything else around. And so just a really quick recap, right now as it exists in Colorado, the third congressional district includes most of the Western Slope. It also includes Southern Colorado, Southwest Colorado, all the way over to Pueblo. The new configuration is a southern Colorado district, so it removes some of the western slope communities like northwest Colorado and Garfield County. Those areas would be put into a district anchored by Boulder. Right. That's the second congressional district, which, as you mentioned, Moffitt, Rio Blanco, Garfield counties, all the way east to Boulder and parts of Larimer, but not Fort Collins, <laughs> and even a little slice of Weld. But most of the population would be in the front range counties. One thing that grabbed a lot of attention with the proposed second congressional district is that it draws two members of Congress, Democrat Joe Naguse from Boulder and Republican Lauren Boebert from Garfield County into the same district. So Boebert would move from living in the third congressional district to the second. I I would say this definitely put the political world in a bit of a tizzy. Right. And I think the original tizzy about the map was the fact that Colorado was getting an eighth congressional district. So if you look a little south of where CD2 would be, this is where the new congressional district would be. It changes a bit from the first map. It's still North Denver Metro, but really focuses on the eastern portion, sort of the Adams County portion. And then it goes further into Weld County to get part of Greeley and even Windsor. It's a district that's about 40% Latino. And that was something we heard in the testimony that a lot of people wanted a district to have that high percentage of Latino voters. Yep, it's definitely also a higher percentage of Latinos than the first proposed map. Okay, so moving east to Colorado's fourth congressional district, 
The main population centers there would be Fort Collins, part of Greeley, and Highlands Ranch. This would be largely the Eastern Plains District. And we're hearing some pushback from from a, a number of folks. I've talked to Republicans who don't feel like Highlands Ranch really should be with the Eastern Plains. In the, some of the written comments, a lot of people in Fort Collins do not want to be moved uh, to more of a conservative district. Right. So um, if you sweep around a bit further, you know, if you continue sort of that arc around Denver, then you get the sixth congressional district, which is all of Aurora, and then most of the rest of Arapahoe County and a tiny bit of northwest Dugco. And then there is the seventh congressional district, as Sarah Blackhurst of Action 22 lovingly called it the donut hole of Colorado because it it's really kind of in the center of the state. It would include Jefferson County. It would include Chafee, Gilpin, Clear Creek, Fremont, uh, Teller, and Park. Yeah, the seventh congressional district would change quite a bit. I mean, there's more mountain communities and the Nonpartisan staff did describe it as a front range district, kind of in the mountain range sense. And then have to highlight the two biggest cities in the state, Denver, Colorado Springs. Those districts didn't really change too much and they were kept whole. Well, El Paso County, part of it does go into the fourth. The fact that El Paso County is as big population as it is, and the fact that it can almost be divided in half, I think just tells you how much growth that county has seen. So whatever you think about this map, it's interesting from a political standpoint because it re-envisions how to represent the different communities of interest in Colorado. What was interesting to me is that I heard pretty positive reviews from very partisan Republicans and Democrats. And in fact, Democrats would say, I bet Republicans don't like this map. And Republicans would say, I bet Democrats aren't happy with this map, which was kind of funny. I mean, not that people didn't have some things they'd like to tweak, but No one I talked to, at least in the political world, was up in arms opposed to this. You know, that kind of surprises me to hear because I actually thought the Republicans would be a little bit put off by this because two of their existing members would have to move, in theory, Boebert out of the new second congressional district and Buck would have to move back into the fourth congressional district. I mean, we have to point out that you don't have to live in the district you represent in Congress, technically, but... I don't think it looks great if you don't live in that district. No, it doesn't. I think that's the first attack ad any competitor does against them if they decide to run in three and four, but not live in three and four. If these lines hold and Bobert and Buck don't move and instead fight for the new district they're drawn into, we would have two open seats, the third and the fourth. And then granted, we have the eighth congressional district. So we could have three congressional seats without an incumbent. Right. But of course, Buck could decide to run in the 8th, and then you would have a sitting congressman running in this new congressional district. But, you know, again, to stress, this is all very speculative. But as you've mentioned, there's still going to be other draft maps that the staff can put out. So we might be putting the cart ahead of the horse right now, but it's always fun to talk about. Democrats seemed really happy about Boebert and Nagoose potentially facing off, you know, that would be a Democratic district as drawn. So I don't think that's super likely, but we have already seen some fundraising emails go out from Nagoose about his possible opponent. (music) 
moving out of the politics a little bit, we're starting to hear some of the feedback from the public already with some of the online comments and what people are saying about this proposal. The commission really honored what we were hearing from a lot of members of the Latino community. They were asking for Latino residents in the Roaring Fork Valley to be combined with some of the Southern Colorado Latino communities, keeping the San Luis Valley whole, Pueblo and the indigenous communities. So I've heard from Democrats and Latino groups that they're very, very happy with this Southern Colorado district. This is really also a chance to look at whose communities of interest have gotten the attention of the commission. The first map was definitely more deferential to protecting rural interests with a western slope and an eastern plains districts, not including any of the Denver metro area. I will say I've heard different things from the rural point of view. Sarah Blackhurst with Action 22, which, you know, advocates for southern Colorado districts. You know, it's not perfect, but she says there are at least three different districts that will have a large rural voice and, you know, they'll have to work hard to make sure that they are heard, but it's doable. But I also spoke to someone else, a Republican operative that basically said rural Colorado got sliced and diced. When I was reading through some of the online comments, I was hearing a little bit of that frustration from people in in rural parts of the state. You know, let's say you're in northwest Colorado. Currently, you're in a district with all of Western Colorado, for the most part, and a Republican member of Congress. You could be put in a district with a Democrat from Boulder. It's hard to navigate all these different communities of interest. And I will add that one commissioner noted that he thinks the focus over the next couple of weeks needs to be for the commission to prioritize the different communities of interest. So the map is reflective, it's representative of many Coloradans, you know, without disenfranchising others. And, you know, that's just going to be a tough task. I do not envy these staffers. First off, they had to work even more than we did on Labor Day weekend. (laughs) I, I can't even imagine the hours they're putting in. But, you know, voters overwhelmingly approved this process that removes state lawmakers from overseeing this. And at least what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, people aren't saying the nonpartisan staff is out to get one person or the other or help one party over the other. I think that's why we've seen political operatives from across the spectrum be okay with how things stand. They can tell that the commission was listening to feedback and trying to tweak things and create these different options. Yeah, that's exactly what I heard from Josh Penry. He's a Republican political operative, and he was really supportive of amendments Y and Z, which got us these independent redistricting commissions. This is a fair process. And in any case, it's vastly preferable to what would have been put forward by you know, a bunch of politicians under, under the Golden Dome. And I think that is probably the biggest thing I heard from a lot of different people, right? Like, they wanted to take the politics out of this process. And this is this is what we get. And I think especially for Republicans being in the minority, not having control in the state legislature or at the governor's office, things would not look that good for them if Democrats weren't in charge of this. It, you know, there's lots of ways to draw communities of interest that would give Democrats more safe seats in this map as we're initially seeing, would have quite a few competitive seats. I think it'll be interesting to see how that discussion moves along in the next couple of weeks. I think we should probably talk about what people can expect. 
this really sort of jump starts and really quickens the process um, now that the first staff map is out. That's right. This this just got real. I mean, for me, it just yeah. it really seems like, OK, this is happening now, people. We got to pay attention here. So the map that's being proposed right now, the commission could vote on this map as is. If eight out of the 12 commissioners support this and keep in mind, including in that eight, you need two unaffiliated commissioners. If you get that supermajority, the process could be done with this map. If the commission doesn't agree to this map, then the nonpartisan staff will draft a second map, get public feedback, tweak it, then there can be another vote. They will do that a third time, each time trying to get to this supermajority consensus. If after the third map they don't reach eight votes, that staff map still automatically gets submitted to the Colorado Supreme Court. Right. And the state Supreme Court has to approve a new congressional map no later than December 15th, um, because next year we have elections. Indeed. And that is an excerpt of the latest Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, available everywhere you get your podcasts. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.